Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Suzanne Sproutley, and I'm here with my colleague, Chase Cannon, and we bring to you those topics that are important to our clients' employee benefits plans. And today, we're going to go through a survey of what various states are doing on the regulatory front, and we're going to hit three of the biggest states, as, as far as population at least, and, and then three other states where business is very popular. So, Chase, let's just start out and get on with it and, and give us an overview. Yeah, thanks, Suzanne. So the states are moving. There's quite a bit going on at the state level. So this is becoming a bigger issue, particularly as we've talked about on prior podcasts, but as employees relocated as a result of the pandemic and as companies grow and start doing business in different states. So some of these laws that we're going to talk about apply based on whether the employer has employees in the state. And some of the laws are going to apply based on whether the employer has a fully insured plan situs in that state. So we'll differentiate those as we go through, but just kind of upfront, um, yes, the relocation of employees, the growth of a business into different states will trigger some of these laws. Other times it's whether you actually get a fully insured plan in that state. But overall, employers are having to monitor state developments more regularly now. We've seen a ton of movement on the paid family leave front. We're going to talk about a couple of states uh, laws in that regard. And we have some really helpful resources on, on that paid family leave state level front. Uh, but it's basically becoming the spider web of compliance challenges for multi-state employers. And as I mentioned, more employers are having to consider themselves multi-state because of this rise in remote work or work from home or work from wherever type of arrangements. Right, it has changed. The landscape has definitely changed. Well. Let's start off with what's usually one of the more challenging states from an employer compliance perspective, and that's the beautiful California, where, where I will be headed later this month on vacation. Um, yeah. So tell us what's happening recently out west. Yeah, so California has many, many laws. San Francisco um, seems to be its own world of laws uh, within California. And so the most recent development here is uh, related to the San Francisco Health Care Security Ordinance. So the quick background on that, the HCSO, as we referred to that as, is it requires employers, and generally that's going to be employers with 20 or more employees, at least one of whom works in San Francisco. Those employers have to spend a minimum amount on healthcare for their San Francisco employees. And so the healthcare expenditure rate that the employer has to spend varies depending on the size of the employer and the amounts are adjusted annually. And so that's what's happened here. As of January 1st, 2024, that healthcare expenditure rate for large employers, that's gonna be those with 100 or more employees, increases to $3.51 per, per hour payable. That's up from $3.40 per hour in 2023. So just a modest increase there, and we'll see it with the medium and small employers. For medium-sized employers, that's anyone from, from 20 to 99 employees. Um, the expenditure rate rises to $2.34 per hour. That's just up uh, from $2.27 per hour in 2023. And, and then employers with fewer than 20 employees and nonprofit employers 
with fewer than 50 employees, those are what we call small, they're exempt. So just that adjustment that's that's happened there. One quick note there, the, if an employee is managerial, supervisorial, or a confidential employee that earns more than $121,372 per year, that's the equivalent of about $58, a little more, more than $58 per hour, that employee is exempt from the HCSO as well. Um, so that is another sort of threshold that's gone up, that 121372 So we're getting into some numbers here. Um, we've covered this in our newsletter compliance corner. For more information on that, you can see those numbers. Um, we also have a publication that covers this. Reach out to your uh, NFP representative for that. The last thing there is that there's going to be a revised notice that employers will have to post once that becomes available from the, from the city there. Yeah, and I really want to echo those resources that we have. They're really wonderful resources, and this information is too hard to keep in your head and, and to just listen to. You really need a, a cheat sheet of sorts, and we've got some wonderful resources on that, on that front. So let's go to another large state, which would be New York. Yeah, so from coast to coast here, uh, but this one relates to pay, paid family leave or, or New York PFL, as it's referred to. Um, recently, this is a similar uh, adjustment here, but the New York Department of Financial Services or DFS announced the applicable premium rates and the maximum employee contributions for PFL coverage beginning in 2024. So a slight adjustment here, but as some quick background, and again, this is helpful to understand just at a high level, what are these different laws? New York PFL applies to all private employers, and I want to highlight it, that includes out-of-state employers with at least one employee working in New York. So lots of employers can stumble into this and not realize it just by having an employee who maybe work, uh, moved to New York and works remotely. But the PFL program in New York provides eligible employees with a portion of their wages while taking time off to bond with a child, care for a family member with a serious health condition, or handle personal matters when a family member is deployed abroad on active military service. So those are kind of the standard reasons we see across different states uh, with their paid family leave or paid family and medical leave. Um, also, PFL can be used uh, in situations where an employee or minor dependent child is under an order of quarantine or isolation due to COVID-19. That's something that a lot of employers might have thought we were past, right, with sort of the pandemic moving on. I know we're feeling a little bit of the increase in COVID cases now, but this remains a reason to take PFL in New York. So the new development here is just the increase in the premium rate. Um, the new premium rate for 2024 is basically 0.373% of covered payroll, and that's actually down from 0.455% in 2023. Um, so some adjustments there, the covered payroll threshold um, increases to 89,343, and that's up from uh, 87,785. Um, so the maximum per employee premium is 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 going to be $333.25 a year for 2024. So some employers like to think of that as an annualized amount, and that's that's what that is. So again, these numbers <laughs> you don't have to remember them. Just kind of going through um, what they are. Employers uh, should work with their carriers, their payroll providers to ensure those premium rates are properly implemented and communicated. Um, and they need to be aware that the model language for employee materials and payroll deduction notices have also been updated for 2024. 
So those are those are kind of the employer takeaways. Make sure this is being administered properly. Make sure notices go out as they should. And then again, we have an awesome resource on this uh, New York Paid Family Leave Guide for Employers uh, that will have these numbers in there and is, is helpful as you're walking through this as a, as a company. All right, now let's go to the great state of Texas where we are located. Tell us about Texas. Yeah, so several new Texas laws took effect on September 1st uh, of this year, 2023, which are interesting. And so we're going we're gonna to walk through three laws here. And they're a little bit different in, in their application. But the first one relates to MIWAs. And MIWAs are almost like a swear word in our industry, only because they create a lot of additional compliance challenges. And not necessarily prohibited, but they invite new federal and state obligations. And the state obligations are usually more challenging. So a new law took effect um, on September 1st in Texas that allows MIWAs, and a MIWA is a multiple employer welfare arrangement. That's basically just one plan that's covering the employees of two or more non-related entities. So um, businesses that are not under common control, yet they have one plan covering employees uh, of the two companies, two or more. So this bill allows MIWAs to form based on the employer's geographical association, um, allowing for working owners to get MIWAR coverage. It waives the two-year business existence requirement and requires demonstration of federal compliance. Um, the bill also authorizes MIWAs to provide comprehensive health benefit plans and to structure them like a PPO or EPO, as long as the MIWA complies with other Texas Insurance Code provisions. So that sounds very technical. The takeaway here is that it becomes a little bit easier for MIWAs to form in Texas. Really quickly, as we know, fully insured MIWAs across the board are really more accepted by states than self-insured MIWAs. In Texas, fully insured MIWAs really just have to be registered in the state, and then the state may ask occasionally for a proof of that fully insured status. On the other hand, if a MIWA wants to be self-insured, that's where um, heavy state regulation comes into play, including here in Texas. Basically, in Texas, you would be required to obtain and maintain a certificate of authority. Uh, the application itself requires numerous requirements like organizational documents, financial statements, and a detailed statement about the proposed plan. You have to have an actuarial opinion and a statement that the plan is in compliance with ERISA, and you have to have a fidelity bond. So bottom line here is stay away from the self-insured MIWAs because it's challenging, but if you are in an association uh, in Texas or you're looking to form a plan that would cover two or more non-related entities, the rules have been relaxed a little bit here. I thought this one was really interesting just because we haven't heard a lot about the MIWAs or the association plans uh, for, you know, it's been a couple of years since we've, we've heard about that. So in addition to that, Texas has been busy working through some state rules on transparency and pricing. Uh, these go along with the federal rules under the Consolidated Appropriations Act. That's the federal law that was really attempting to increase transparency and pricing and to promote more clarity in the healthcare system. Um, so this new law, this is um, SB 622. This requires health plan issuers is the term they use. That's really just a health insurance carrier in Texas to list 
generic and brand name prescription drugs covered by a specific health insurance plan, the enrollee's eligibility, cost sharing information, and applicable utilization management requirements. And so the carrier also has to respond to requests in real time and cannot restrict a prescribing provider from communicating information about the drug or penalizing a provider for disclosing or prescribing lower cost alternative drugs. So this is really applicable to fully insured plans and uh, again, is trying to, to help facilitate better pricing, more information relating to prescription drugs. Well, there's a lot on transparency, isn't there, going on? There is, yeah. And it's, it's going to be a little bit confusing, too, because, you know, how, how do these rules interact with the federal rules? Most of them are just putting in a state provision that backs up what's going on at the federal level. Nevertheless, it's going to be, uh, you know, confusing hearing about the different rules. The takeaway on this one is it applies to a fully insured plan in Texas. Employers with those fully insured plans, they're going to want to work with the carrier. That's also true with another law that was signed that relates to ground ambulance services. And really, this bill adds ground ambulance services to services that are subject to the state's surprise billing laws. So another angle on this idea that, you know, understanding what you're being charged not getting stuck with a huge bill when you didn't realize that was coming. Um, so this law includes ground ambulance services as subject to the state's rules on surprise billing. Um, the Department of Insurance uh, is going to develop a billing rate database and put out rules that, that sort of require health plans to reimburse ground ambulance services at either a, a rate set by a political subdivision um, if, if they've gone in and gotten that approved by the department or the lesser of the billed charge of 30, 325% of Medicare. So again, we don't have to remember all these numbers. The takeaway here is uh, fully insured plans in Texas. You're going you're gonna to want to be aware of this and work with your carrier if these services come into play for employees that are covered under your plan. A lot going on here in Texas. So let's go mid-country now and, and go to Illinois. What's happening in Illinois? Yeah, so shifting gears here a little bit, a little bit out of the technical aspects of what Texas was doing. Um, Illinois enacted a new uh, law relating to transportation benefits. This is known as the Transportation Benefits Program Act, and it requires employers in specific geographic areas to provide pre-tax commuter benefits to covered employees. So we've seen this in other states, particularly those with big cities where uh, public commuting is, is common. This one takes effect January 1st, 2024, so just a few short months away. Uh, employers uh, that have 50 or more employees and have an office located within one mile uh, of the transit office within Cook County uh, are going to have to follow this. Cook County includes Chicago, Schaumburg, Hyde Park, Evanston, and other areas adjacent to Chicago. So just think of it as the Chicago metro area. Um, and the, the regional transit authority there is going to publish a searchable map of addresses located to, to figure out who is actually covered by this. But this benefit has to be provided to all uh, covered employees starting on the employee's first full pay period after 120 days of employment. So think of that as like the fourth month of employment. Um, covered employees are, are basically those that work 35 hours uh, per week. And, and again, are doing so within that designated geographic area, that Chicago metro area. 
So basically employers have to provide employees with the option to purchase transit passes on a pre-tax basis. And that's going to have some interaction with how the internal revenue code looks at this. Um, and so employers are going uh, to have to work that out and figure out how the pre-tax works. Um, but really awareness here is the takeaway. Employers that you know have uh, commuting employees in the Chicago area are gonna be, need to be aware of that law and then start working with your tax advisor or legal counsel on how to design a commuter benefit that complies with section 132, that's the internal revenue code to get those tax benefits. But most importantly, to get this in place for Chicago employees before January 1st, 2024. All right, on back out West, let's, uh, let's go to Oregon. Yeah, Oregon, uh, beautiful place. Love it out there. Oregon has a paid family medical leave law. So you can see this common thread through these states, even when we're tracking new developments in things like commuter, things like transparency, we still get back to the most challenging, which is paid family medical leave. Oregon's law applies to any employer with one or more employee working in Oregon. So we see just one employee can trigger this. The development here is that paid leave benefits began on September 3rd, 2023. So just a little over a week ago. Um, Oregon employers have to pay attention to this now, right? Employees are now eligible for medical leave. Again, this is for an employee's own serious health condition, for family leave, which would be caring for a family member with a serious health condition, or caring for and bonding with a child in the first year after birth, adoption, or foster care placement, or for safe leave. And this is a new, a common thing that we're seeing uh, being able to take time off for survivors or those dealing with the effects of sexual assault, domestic violence, harassment, and or stalking. Um, so on this one, both employee and larger employer contributions, that's 25 or more employees when we say large employer, uh, those began, those contributions began on January 1st of this year. Um, and then the benefits application process opened in the middle of August this year. Um, so we're just seeing this now, again, with that September 3rd date, employees can actually take those paid leave benefits. So Oregon is the most recent state to begin paid leave family leave for employees, uh, at least those working in Oregon. But plenty of states are already in that paid family and medical leave space or are planning to join it. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a, a lot to keep up with in terms of what the states are doing and um, but let's finish up now, again, going the other direction out in New England. Let's uh, finish up with Maine. Yes, everyone wants to finish their summer in Maine. This is a beautiful place and tons of lobster. Uh, but on July 11th uh, of this year, Maine enacted its version of statutory paid family medical leave. So again, I just mentioned states are in this. This is the 15th state plus Washington, D.C. to really establish a PFML program. Uh, Maine's PFML program applies to all employers who have at least one employee working in Maine. The exception there is for the federal government, uh, but the payroll withholding of the employee's contribution is scheduled to begin on January 1st, 2025. So plenty of time here for employers with employees in Maine, uh, but benefits will be available to eligible employees starting May 1st of 2026. Um, there's some funding there, uh, you know, that has to do with how the premiums are split up and it's based on the size of the employer 
We won't go into details there. Basically, if you're a smaller employer with fewer than 15 employees, you don't have to contribute to the program. You would just withhold from employees and contribute. Whereas if you're over that threshold, you have to also contribute. Um, the same type of reasons employees can take the leave that we just discussed, you know, for, for family members that are sick, for bonding with new children or, or adoptions or fosterings, and then uh, family members, military deployment, or uh, victims of domestic violence, stalking, or sexual assault. So uh, employers have plenty of, of time for the main PFML program here. The main Department of Labor is tasked to create rules for the program. So plenty to come there and plenty of time to get going, but definitely highlights this trend of state regulation of paid time off and specifically that trend toward paid family and medical leave for residents in various states. All right. Well, thank you very much, Chase. I appreciate you bringing all these state activities to us. And again, remember to look at for our resources and compliance corner and some of the other state resources. Um, it, it really uh, will help keep you on track. And with that, we like to say, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for joining. <laughs>